15 verses. We will be referring to all of the chapter, but uh, let's just begin then at verse 1. <clears throat> and if this sounds very familiar to some of our previous readings, that's not a coincidence. Now let me sing of my well-beloved, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up, cleared out its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So we expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now please, tell, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, it shall be burned. Break down its wall, it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned or dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I'll also command the clouds that, they, that no rain rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is <coughs> the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold oppression. For righteousness, but behold a cry for help. Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, Truly many houses shall be desolate. Great and beautiful ones shall be without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath. A homer of seed shall yield one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night, till wine inflames them. The harp and the strings, the tambourine and the flute and wine are in their feasts, but they do not regard the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of his hands. Therefore, my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished, their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure. Their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he who is jubilant shall descend into it. People shall be brought down, each man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment. The God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. Then the lambs shall feed in their pasture. And in the waste places of the fat ones, strangers shall eat. Now, it's probably a, an understatement to say that the overall theme of this passage is judgment. The Lord again brings his case against specifically the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And this time he uses the illustration of a vineyard. Exactly the same illustration that Jesus uses in that passage that's recorded in Matthew uh, 21 and indeed throughout uh, the, the, the Gospels. 
a parable of judgment against the people of Judah and Jerusalem who had rejected him. And we'll talk about that as we go through. But even as we read it, there's a, there's a tender-heartedness, almost a wistfulness, even as judgment is proclaimed. The word woe is used six times in this passage. And it doesn't merely denounce sin. It laments over sin. The same word is translated in Isaiah 1 as ah, that sort of heartfelt cry, and alas, in 1 Kings. But even in the midst of judgment, there is hope. In judgment, God remembers the ones described here as his own lambs. And that mercy doesn't just extend to them, but amazingly to the strangers too. And this is a prophecy, or one of the prophecies that we see in Isaiah, of the gathering in, not just of the believing Jews, but amazingly the Gentiles as well. As Jesus hints at this in the passage in John chapter 10 that we'll refer to. So then let's look at the, the breakdown here. And as we look at it, let's ask ourselves a number of very important questions. How does this apply to society in general, the society in which we live? Probably easy to see that. But the more difficult question, how does it apply to the professing church? Can it in any sense apply to us as a church? And perhaps the most searching question of all, how does this, how does this to some extent describe my attitude as well? So the first thing we see in the first six verses is the failure of Judah to live up to the great privileges that God had given them. The Lord describes himself here as the well-beloved. It reminds us what God has done for his people. That all of it has been through his son, his well-beloved. And the failure of the people to appreciate and respond to this is made all the more acute, all the more terrible, all the more sad because of not just what God has invested in the people, but who he has invested in them. And this tinge of sadness, it reminds us of what Jesus, many years later when he came to Judah and Jerusalem, and it says he wept over the city. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you to myself as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Therefore, uh, your, your punishment is coming. Secondly, the failure to appreciate these tremendous privileges will not be ignored by God. Judgment has to come. In fact, in verse 3, the people are asked, what's, what's going to happen here? If this is the case between God and his people, what's going to happen? Verse 3, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. You see, God is saying to all of us, if this is your response to my grace, what do you think is going to happen next? Not just what do you think is going to happen next, but be honest, what should happen next? Should I, the righteous one, ignore this? It's a rhetorical question because the answer obviously is that he will not. So God declares that he will bring in a judgment that will be appropriate for what the people are doing. The blessings that they refused to appreciate will be taken away and replaced by judgment. 
And instead of the, the long suffering of God, which they refuse to see as an opportunity to repent, there will be terrible uh, judgment. What will I do to my vineyard? He says in verse 5, I will take away its hedge, the symbol of protection. It shall be burned. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. This, of course, is ultimately fulfilled in the, 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 the terrible destruction that Nebuchadnezzar brings on Jerusalem when the people refuse to repent. But it's a pattern that we all have to, to face up to. And the specific failures then of the people are listed. And it's a, it's a long list. We're just going to touch on it in verses 7 to 21. And again, as we look at this long list of failures, this long list of hard-heartedness, this lack of appreciation for the goodness of God, let God search our own hearts. It begins with the sin that is the source of all uh, other sins. Uh, what he describes here, look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice or righteousness, but behold oppression. For righteousness, but behold a cry. Those who believe that God no longer cares or notices unrighteousness among his people are reminded here that he does and in much of the professing church today, there's a, a forgetting or even a deliberate ignoring of the, the righteousness of God. That the message is, well, you know, God is love, God is gracious, and therefore as long as we're named God's people, we can live any way we choose. And God here, not speaking to the Babylonians, not speaking to the Egyptians, not even speaking to apostate Israel. He's speaking to those who still go to the temple, who offer the sacrifices, but whose hearts are far from him. Well, what are the, some of the, the, the signs of their turning away from him? Well, verse 8 says, Woe to those who join house to house and field to field. They're interested in, in building up their, their earthly possessions. And we're, we're reminded here, aren't we, that materialism and covetousness is always a source of turning from God. In fact, uh, Paul in the New Testament describes covetousness very appropriately as idolatry. That instead of seeing the things of this world as a blessing which we can use to, to, be, to, to give glory to God and to be a blessing to others, to, to, to just want more and more and more for its own sake. Secondly, without God, the people turn to entertainment to fill the void. The harp, the strings, the tambourine, the flute, wine are in their feasts, but they do not regard the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of his hands. When we no longer are enchanted by the, the beauty of Christ, the wonder of what God has done for us, we, we turn to more shallow entertainment to fill uh, the void. In verse 11, he says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night until wine inflames them. And it's not just uh, shallow entertainment. It's, it's something else to, to, to try and mask that emptiness that is there, whether it be drink or drugs or whatever it is. But these are characteristics of of God's people, sadly, when they ignore him. And then he says in verse 18 that the danger here is that 
if people continue unrepentant in these sins, the sins which they, they, they look for as a substitute for God, rather than serving God, they end up serving these sins. They become so enmeshed in them, so entangled with them, that they're, 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 they're tied up. Woe to those who draw iniquity with the cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope. It's a, it's a terrible picture. And in verse 19, God is so despised that the people do not fear the idea of his appearing. Any talk of, of being held accountable for our behavior is just foolishness to them. They say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. Very similar to what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, that you know, in the last days there will be scoffers who, who scoff at the idea of a final judgment. They deliberately forget, Peter says, that, that worldwide judgment has already come in the great flood, which was a, a prefiguring of that final judgment. And in the society in which we live, in much of professing Christianity, and if we're honest at times in our own hearts, there is a, a so what when we hear that God is a God of righteousness, that God hates sin, that he, he, he invites us, he pleads with us, commands us to turn from our sin and to turn to him. It's, well, as we say, it goes in one ear and out the other. And the people in verse 20 and 21, they've lost all idea of right and wrong. They've turned away from God's truth, substituting their own ideas and their own wisdom. Let's just look at this and see if it sounds familiar. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Literally, that's a description of, if we can call it morality at all, but the morality of our own day. And even as Christians, we're, we're constantly under pressure, aren't we, to, to agree with this, to call right wrong and wrong right, to call good evil and evil good, to, to substitute man's ideas for, for God's law and God's word. And in the last section, up to verse 30, God describes the terrible judgment that he has prepared. So, for example, in verse 24, he says, Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness their blossom will ascend like dust because they've rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. And notice how God links inextricably there his word, his character, and how we, how we react to his word and his character that's displayed in his word. That's our real attitude to him. And 
he goes on to say his overwhelming anger will continue against his people even after they assume it cannot get any worse therefore the anger of the lord is aroused verse 25 against his people he has stretched out his hand against them he has stricken them the hills trembled their carcasses are as refuge in the midst of the streets a horrible picture for all this his anger is not turned away but his hand is stretched out still very often we tell ourselves the lie as a society even as christians even as individuals well you know i can take it okay i know that the god probably uh, will do something and 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 chastise me for this sin but i'm up for it are you are you really when that little voice whispers in your ear you will be your own god make your own choices follow your heart's desire yes god is saying that there will be consequences but you will not surely die well did they surely die they surely did and the devil's tack is to magnify the the, the, the so-called advantages of disobeying god and minimize or eliminate completely the consequences of disobedience this is what was happening with the people of israel or the people of judah here in the verse 25 god is saying you think you, you you know how bad it can get it's only just started and so often when we make wrong choices in our life we have maybe a, a short-term sense of, of of exuberance or joy a sense of false freedom or, or false liberty but then the consequences day by day week by week month by month begin to to crowd in on us and we have that moment where it says if only if only i had made a different choice and the very instrument that the, the people of judah most dread the 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 enemies from the the north the, the babylonians all they're, they're spending their time to try and build up alliances with the egyptians and the other nations to to avoid being conquered by the babylonians rather than simply turning back to god this will be the very instrument that god will use to bring judgment again the very the very thing they most dread is what god will use to to chastise them well you might say is there any hope in the midst of this grim picture well i believe there is in verses 16 and 17 and it's linked again to the character of the unchanging god that when the world turns its back on god when the apostate church turns its back on god and when even the professing church to a large extent turns its back on god god's plan is not defeated and in the midst of judgment he remembers mercy let's look at verses 16 and 17 again but the lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment and the god who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness then the lamb shall feed in their pasture and in the waste places of the fat ones strangers shall eat and this is a, a pattern we see don't we throughout the scriptures 
even in the midst of terrible judgment, there's the promise, and with the promise of God, there's the reality of salvation. As God expels Adam and Eve from the garden, even as he's expelling them, he promises a deliverer who will defeat Satan. As God is judging the entire world in the flood, he's rescuing Noah and his family so that his uh, promise will be continued even as he's bringing judgment. And of course, as Jesus dies on the cross, as God's ultimate judgment that his people should have endured is endured by Jesus on their behalf, judgment and mercy meet together. It's not that there's judgment or mercy, but judgment and mercy exactly coincide. And here in the midst of God warning and promising this terrible judgment which must come, and in it he will be hallowed in righteousness, he will be exalted in this judgment. We have this beautiful picture in verse 17 of the lambs feeding in their pasture. The, the contrast could not be any more stark. Before this, we see hedges being uprooted and burned. We see carcasses in the city streets. We see impending judgment and doom. And now, suddenly, we have a glimpse of lambs feeding in their pasture. There are, there are two great pictures that are used, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, of the people of God. One is the one of God's planting or God's vineyard. The other is of God's flock, the lambs. And throughout the Old Testament, particularly here in Isaiah, but also in Jeremiah, the, the leaders of Israel are condemned as those who, instead of feeding the flock, are fleecing the flock, who are looking after themselves rather than looking after uh, the flock. That's part of the reason that judgment is going to come after all. But in the midst of that judgment, the lambs shall feed in their pasture. In the midst of judgment, God has his way of protecting his own people and bringing his salvation and his blessing and his protection to them. The most vulnerable, the lambs, who are so exploited and ignored by the people of Judah, shall safely graze under his justice. And Jesus announces this same judgment in Matthew 21 when he talks about how and, and the religious leaders if you remember the, at the end of that passage they knew that Jesus was speaking against them why because they knew all these passages of scripture it's just that they they spiritually ignored them they ignored them in their hearts and just went their own way so when Jesus referred in in his parable of the vineyard they knew he was borrowing from Isaiah 5 and that he was he was speaking judgment on them but not only was he speaking judgment on them but the context throughout Isaiah and throughout Jeremiah of God bringing judgment on empty religion which has no spiritual reality is that God himself will come and protect his flock and feed his flock. In the, the parallel incident in John 10 which again describes the time when Jesus comes for the final time into Jerusalem. He's again confronted by the religious leaders, and here he doesn't, uh, doesn't record the, 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 the parable of the vineyard, but it records Jesus describing himself as the good shepherd. 
He's the good shepherd who's confronting the careless, lazy, unspiritual, uncaring religious leaders who are the, the bad shepherds, if you like. And I think there's very little doubt that by doing this, Jesus is bringing their minds back to scriptures like this. Because judgment is about to come. And it's going to come, if you like, in two, two phases for two different uh, people. The judgment that God's people deserve, but, but do not receive because they've trusted in Jesus, falls on Jesus. But within the generation, an even more terrible destruction will come upon Judah and Jerusalem, just as it came upon Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, this time by the armies of the Roman Empire. And so what Jesus is saying, I believe, here, is that in the midst of judgment, he can remember mercy. And not only that he can save his own people, he can fulfill all these promises of the good news going into all the world. Because not only will he feed and protect and take care of the lambs, but in the waste places of the fat ones, the rich, careless, heedless, unspiritual spiritual leaders, strangers shall eat. The kingdom of God will be taken from you, Jesus says, and given to another people. The reality is that sin particularly the sin of lack of appreciation of God and all that he is and all that he's done for us. God will deal with it. He always does. But it doesn't frustrate God's plan. You know, if, if this church, God forbid, was ever to turn apostate, they say, well, that's it. There's no hope for the dock anymore. <laughs> There's no hope for this church anymore. But God would just simply raise up another church to continue his, his plans. So what's the, the big takeaway from all of this? Well, it's not without reason that again and again throughout the Gospels, John the Baptist, Jesus himself, and then later on in the New Testament, the apostles keep going back to the prophecy of Isaiah. Because probably more than any other part of the scripture of the Old Testament, they saw it being fulfilled before their eyes. The, the great spiritual principles that they saw being spoken of in Isaiah and sadly being lived out in the experience of, of Jeremiah in the next generation, they saw too in their own generation. They saw a, a world that didn't know God and the people of God effectively living as they didn't want to know him uh, either. But in the midst of all of this, God himself comes in the person of Jesus and says, I now am the point of judgment. If you believe in me, if you trust in me, you pass from death to life. If you refuse to believe me, he who, he who does not believe me, he says, does not believe in him who sent me. I am the, the, the point of judgment now. And all the judgment that was 
prophesied in Isaiah that fell initially on the people of Jerusalem and Judah in their day is coming now in a, a final critical way. But I am the, the way of escape. I am the, the place of, of God's mercy for, for sheltering for, for his lambs. And not just his lambs, but the, the, the people of the nations who, who turn uh, to God through me. In John chapter 12, whenever, just a, a few verses after that time when he describes himself as the good shepherd who has sheep not just of this fold, but other sheep he has who will also hear his voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. He's coming into Jerusalem and some of the, the Greeks who are there come to Philip and say, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus rejoiced and said, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all peoples to myself. So as a church, as families, as individuals, we have been greatly blessed. We have been given even greater blessings than the people of Judah and Jerusalem. The question we have to continually ask ourselves as we read verses like this, how do I give an account to God for his great blessings? Is my heart running away from him, for materialism, for entertainment? Am I more in tune with the world calling wrong, right, and right, wrong? Where is my source of right and wrong coming from? And always remembering that God is announcing judgment, not because he desires to bring judgment, but to warn us and provide a way of escape. And that way of escape was and always is Jesus, the source of protection, the one who gathers the lambs to himself, who feeds them, who leads them in the ways of righteousness for his own name's sake, who provides for them an eternal feast of joy in his presence forevermore.